This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Shakespeare, oh, his work, we, we talk about Shakespeare, the man, and Shakespeare, the work, the body of work. It's a body of work that spans about two decades, either side of 1600. It's therefore late 16th century and then early 17th century, both on the calendar and in the inventory of literary and cultural forms. The work of his that today I will talk about first is a poem that looks backward from the centre of that period, June 1601. But first, a few reminders of his country and its times, perhaps uh, needless reminders for all of you or most of you. England begins the 16th century, the wealthy Catholic country that is symbolised by Shakespeare's depiction of the meeting of King Henry VIII with the King of France under the auspices of England's Chancellor and Papal Legate Cardinal Wolsey, on the field of the cloth of gold in June 1520, on the very edge of England's last territorial possession in Europe, Calais. For 300 years, England has been specially bound to the papacy. Shakespeare depicts for us on stage in King John, the surrender of the crown to an earlier papal legate, Pandulf, who bestows it back on King John as holding of the Pope, your sovereign greatness and authority. This papal diplomacy instantly resolves and dissolves the dire predicament portrayed at the end of the immediately preceding scene by the play's quasi hero and super patriot, the bastard Falconbridge, who predicted imminent civil war from John's lack of a legitimate title to be king. Then when the English and the invading French forces, after brushing aside Pandolf's mediation, have fought each other to an exhausted standstill, they each put their cause to the disposing of the Cardinal. And thus peace is secured as well as the legitimacy of the new king, John's son, Henry and secured by the papal legate's ability to consummate this business happily by the consent of the great men of each kingdom, England and France, kingdoms the papacy has backed against the Holy Roman Empire. And then again, on two or three occasions in the next 350 years, a king of England has declared England to be Mary's dowry a dedication that Shakespeare memorialises with astonishing subtlety in lines of Richard III that are often quoted but rarely, if ever, understood as he intended the Catholics and crypto-Catholics in his audience to understand them. But then, as we know, by a top-down convulsion whose first impact on the English state is subtly rendered in Shakespeare's last play, Henry VIII, or all is true. England, since seven years before Shakespeare's birth, has been a rigorously Protestant state, 
whose church is entirely controlled by its supreme governor, the queen, and whose bishops and clerical ministers or priests are appointees, servants, and agents of the state, in a sense, undreamed of by ambitious, worldly, and politically powerful Catholic bishops, such as Wolsey, or the Bishop of Winchester, staged in Henry VI, parts one and two. Now, and through the whole of Shakespeare's life, every adult citizen must attend the weekly service in his or her local state church. And those who recuse themselves from this legal obligation are, are liable to repeated fines and expropriations calculated to reduce all but the most wealthy and ingenious to early and total destitution. And anyone who partakes in any way in the central religious acts, mass, or any other sacrament of the old church is subject in law to the penalties of treason, that is, to hanging and disemboweling while living. Though doctrinally Calvinist to a degree that would amaze modern Anglicans and Episcopalians or Presbyterians, the state church created by Henry VIII and the guardians of his immediate successor, Edward VI, and recreated after a brief Catholic interlude by his second daughter, the one by Anne Bullen, Elizabeth, is a church deeply divided between, to use the common idiom of the 1590s, Protestant and Puritans. The Protestants dominate and have a lively fear and accurate foresight that if the Puritans gain the upper hand, episcopacy itself will be abolished and not far behind the monarchy itself in favor of rule directly by the congregations of the godly. A more immediate problem weighs on the polity and its political classes, however, as the 1570s became the 1580s, and it became certain that Elizabeth would have no child to succeed her, that the direct line of the Tudor dynasty would end not much more than a century after its founding. The question who would succeed her under the English constitution's rules of succession or despite them became grippingly serious. But Elizabeth forbade any public discussion of it whatsoever. Publication of any sort of discussion of the succession was a capital offense. Everyone feared that the succession when the time came would occasion civil war. Everyone knew that there remained many people who would welcome a Catholic successor and restoration. Protestants and Puritans feared that the most obvious successor, James VI of Scotland, though raised a professing Protestant, might revert to the religion of his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth had executed in 1587. They also feared that there might be an openly Catholic claimant whose succession would be promoted by Spain. For after starting the 16th century with a Spanish queen consort, Catherine of Aragon, and then having in mid-century a real king of Spain, Philip II, as consort to the reigning queen of England, Mary Tudor, England had stumbled in the 1580s into a war with Spain, which by century's end had dragged on for over 15 years with no end in sight. No one could know in 1600 that 
in the event James would succeed to the throne in 1603 with the unanimous visible support of the Privy Council and the whole country. Most warmly, the support of England's Catholics, whether open, recusant, or covert believers, most of whom took at face value his assurances of toleration and his repeated hints, even in writing, that he might well soon convert to Catholicism. Nor could anyone know that only 40 years later, the whole edifice of the English state, the monarchy, the episcopacy and all, would be dissolved after a civil war whose destructiveness far exceeded the Wars of the Roses, which Shakespeare had memorialized in his first great planned tetralogy of plays, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, and Richard III. In 2010, in Princeton, I gave a set of three lectures, the Charles B. Test lectures on Shakespeare's patriotic resistance. You can find these online by searching for something like Test Lectures Finnis or Test Lectures Shakespeare or whatever. Each video has 65 to 70 minutes of lecture plus 30 or 40 minutes of questions and answers. The first lecture says something about Shakespeare's place in and his responsiveness to those elements in the historical panorama <clears throat> that I have just recalled. The second lecture focuses on King Lear as Shakespeare's great monument to the multiple transitions of 1603 and his foreboding of civil war and the ruin of the English state. But also about that play's underground or subtextual articulation of the Catholic theory of the proper relation between church and state. The final lecture considers the three plays, King John, Macbeth and Henry VIII, that have always been thought decisive obstacles to detecting and concluding that Shakespeare wrote as a Catholic patriot. And argues, the lecture argues that each of the three plays is really evidence for that conclusion. Well, today I can only cover a few elements from the first lecture, and then I'll focus on King Lear. What I have to say is all in the nature of a historical investigation, not a literary, still less a theological appreciation. It is a fragment and a spin-off. It is a fragment of a number of mostly still unpublished investigations of the playwright's intentions in creating subtexts or underground or lower levels of plot or structure and meaning in at least a number of his works. Only one major and one very minor example of that investigation has been published in print. The major example is the study of his untitled poem, usually entitled Phoenix and Turtle. This study you can find in the Times Literary Supplement number 5220, dated 18th of April 2003, John Finnis and Patrick Martin, Shakespeare's Intercession for Love's Martyr, TLS title. <laughs> I will give, us a, give a taste of its argument, just a taste in a moment. The minor example is a little study of Measure for Measure published on pages 520 through 26 of John Keown and Robert George's Reason, Morality and Law, the first shift that Sophia mentioned. 
and in another version in the Journal of Law, Philosophy and Culture, Volume 5. Unpublished is a whole book on A Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It, and other unfinished studies of plays mentioned in the test lectures. And all this was a spin-off, secondly, from historical investigations that Pat Martin and I conducted into the remarkable life of a virtually exact contemporary of Shakespeare, William Sterrell, and into people and activities associated with him. In the test lectures, I refer to a projected biography of Sterrell, but because of other activities of mine, what has appeared is not a complete biography, but instead a superb book by Pat Martin, Patrick H. Martin, Elizabethan Espionage, Plotters and Spies in the Struggle Between Catholicism and the Crown, published in 2016, in which Sterrell is central in a cast of nearly 600 persons of Shakespeare's time, not counting aliases and fictional names and characters. You can find citations to our nine joint historical investigations published investigations in the bibliography in the Keown and George book or in any of my collected essays by looking for works of mine co-authored with Patrick Martin from 2002 through 2006. Enough of preliminaries. Shakespeare, the author of the works standardly ascribed to him was, and here's a first proposition, on good terms with some leading recusant Catholics and also with some notable Catholics who were associated both with the recusants and with the anti-Catholic regime, Her Majesty's and then His Majesty's government. He wrote in the second proposition, with intent to reflect the concerns of these two sets of Catholics, to memorialize their experiences, and to encourage them in the faith. That second proposition about intention goes far beyond, but is dependent upon the first about associations. And it became a cogent working hypothesis while we were bringing to light and documenting the hitherto entirely unresearched life of an Oxford University philosophy lecturer born only two years before Shakespeare, William Sterrell. That investigation revealed how Sterrell and the great Earl and courtier for whom he worked as secretary from 1592 to 1628, the cryptic, the crypto-Catholic or church papist Earl of Worcester had one or other or both of them, Sterrell and Worcester, been in association, in association with all the seven of the persons alluded to, we came to realize, as birds, living or dead, in the great poem that lies in the chronological and spiritual center of Shakespeare's works, uh, the Phoenix um, Turtle, as it's usually called. It appeared in print, the poem, in, in mid-1601, and for well over 150 years, countless efforts have been made to penetrate its enigmas and identify its birds, especially its doomed protagonists, the phoenix and her husband, the turtle dove, for both of whom the, the poem summons five other birds to a requiem 
for which the poem then itself supplies the anthem and a lament, all in the dimensions and essential rhythmic pattern in reverse of the Dies Irae, the Latin hymn or sequence between the first two readings in the medieval and Tridentine Requiem Mass. Our Times Literary Supplement article identified not only the phoenix and lion and the turtle, her late husband exiled for recusancy, but all the other birds, each a notable Catholic, besides the infamous anti-Catholic judge who sent Anne Lyne to the gallows at Tyburn. It identified all the poem's essential meanings as a whole and in each of its parts. These identifications would not have been possible without the knowledge of persons connected with William Sterrell and Edward Somerset, Earl of Worcester. But though it is a poem meant to be deciphered by recusant Catholics at the time of its publication, and meant not to be decipherable by the ex-Catholic, anti-Catholic regime supporter who was the beneficiary of the collection of commissioned poems in which it was published, it is for any careful reader, a work of compelling beauty. In it, Shakespeare is celebrating the life and character of St. Anne Lyne, canonized by Paul VI in 1970, executed for having mass said in her house in February 1601, less than six months before the poem's appearance. And she was the manager of the housing stock of the small community of Jesuits living in hiding in London under their superior father, Henry Garnet, who is the subject of stanza five, the so-called treble dated crow the black-gowned Jesuit born in 1555. And since about 1595, Garnet had been allowing his top secret mail service to be used to ship downriver and cross channel to Antwerp and beyond the weekly set of letters treasonably written up by William Sterrell to convey to Catholic leaders in Brussels and Rome and Spain, the secrets of the state so far as he could discover them as secretary to the Earl of Worcester at the heart of the Queen's court. Moreover, Sterrell had in the late 1590s arranged the secret escape of Anne Lyon's brother from England to refuge in Spain. And in his travels as an intelligencer, nice name for spy, in the Low Countries in the late 1580s and the 1590s, Sterrell undoubtedly met up with Anne Lyne's exiled husband, Roger, the poem's turtle, who like Anne was a convert to Catholicism and like her was disinherited by his family for his conversion. Each was, converted, each was disinherited by his and her respective families. The poem, commands that the owl-like Chief Justice who had arrested Anne and had sentenced her to death be kept away from her requiem, along with every fowl of tyrant wing, every member of the Queen's regime, except the eagle-feathered king, the Earl of Worcester, the poem is made undecipherable by the habit of virtually every editor to, of inserting a comma between eagle and feathered, entirely unauthorized. 
This Earl's Worcester's uh, heraldic arms display that unique species of basilisk, the wyvern, which has an eagle's feathered legs and thighs. And he is the great patron and friend of England's leading composer, the openly Catholic William Byrd, the covert subject of the poem's opening lines and composer of great motets for the English Catholic martyrs, whose number and line had just joined. So the poem is memorializing the intersection and overlapping of two circles of Catholics. One is the circle of recusants, such as Garnet and his fellow Jesuit and other priests and associates of theirs, and associates of theirs, such as Anne and Roger Lyon. The other is the circle or the many circles of more or less crypto-Catholics living out some sort of public association with the anti-Catholic state religion with or without the permission of their confessors or their consciences, a permission that according to the confessors manuals could only be rightly given to those who like the Earl of Worcester and who knows his secretary might in due time be able to swing the succession to the throne on Elizabeth's death to a Catholic monarch who could restore or at least protect the old faith of England. The poem is, I believe, not merely a personal lament for a remarkable woman cruelly done away with for, for her Catholic faith, but equally an act of witness making actual this overlapping of circles. It celebrated outright recusancy in a poetic form which entirely successfully concealed its audacious central meaning and intent from the eyes of the state and its supporters and from other readers for many centuries, while by the same design, it was en clair to the rather few Catholics who knew the interlocking of the names and so could read, decrypt, outwards from its central Euclidean pun in stanza seven on the word line. To them, until the names and links became forgotten, it was lucid from end to end, clear to us, but not to our foes. All the double meanings were fully deniable and the surface meanings have been appreciated for their astonishing richness and suggestiveness by countless readers down the centuries who suspected absolutely nothing of its central meaning and intent. In this, it is only a uniquely compressed instance of something pervasive or at least widespread across Shakespeare's works, a crypt of Catholic characters and Catholic meanings lies beneath a cathedral of meanings sufficient to themselves or seemingly so. In short, Shakespeare writes as a Catholic would who wished himself and his plays to survive and participate in a public realm that regarded Catholic faith as an ongoing treason to England to be extirpated, should that be possible, while preserving some respect, both for forms of law, including some legal immunities for the houses and households of a few great nobles like Worcester, and for the civilities, sympathies, and shared memories of a common life among kith and kin. 
I think it can be demonstrated circumstantially only, but in real depth and consistency, that A Midsummer Night's Dream was written for the joint wedding of two of the Earl of Worcester's daughters, two Catholic gentlemen, in 1596, one of the bridegrooms having been born on Midsummer Night, 1575, and that As You Like It was written for the wedding of his devoutly Catholic son and heir to a niece of the Queen's leading minister, Sir Robert Cecil, in August 1600. The probability that if the Earl of Worcester, who had a leading playing company of his own, commissioned Shakespeare to write a wedding play, the commission was managed by his secretary, Sterrell, becomes a virtual certainty when one discerns that the 1600 wedding play commissioned from Shakespeare is structured on a series of vivid allusions to Oxford characters of the 1570s and later, most spectacularly to the philosopher John Caius, C-A-S-E, whose philosophy lectures had probably been attended not only by the bridegroom of 1600, but also 20 years earlier by William Sterrell and by Thomas Lodge, author of the best-selling novel, Rosalind, which as all critics know, is the highly visible basis for the play, As You Like It, staged in 1600, when Lodge has returned to London as a highly visible Catholic, practicing medicine in London with a medical degree from a French Catholic university. The links between Worcester, Sterrell and Shakespeare are confirmed by the fact that on the very same day in May 1603, that the new king signed the warrant making Shakespeare's playing company the King's Players, the king, whose leading English official confidant he was already Worcester, also signed on the very same day a warrant installing Sterrell as the landlord of the great former priory of St. John's where all plays were rehearsed and censored for court performance and where the King's players kept their equipment for those performances. William Sterrell in the early 1590s left Oxford to become private secretary to the Earl of Worcester, a role which after a brief hiccup in 1593, he held until the Earl's death full of years and honors in 1628. And which he, Sterrell, combined for the first decade or so with very far reaching activities as an intelligencer and agent of influence employed not only by Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Essex and Francis Bacon to search out the secrets of the English Catholic exiles in Belgium but also simultaneously by the English Catholic exiles in Belgium and Rome to search out and report the secrets of the English state. And who was known by some leading figures on both sides to be an agent of both sides. His master, Edward Somerset, fourth Earl of Worcester, the greatest horseman of the age, was a friend and ally of the Earl of Essex but married his eldest surviving son and heir to a close relative of Essex's great rival, Robert Cecil. When in February 1601, Essex revolted against Cecil's government and was executed, along with the Earl of, uh, uh, condemned, the Earl of Southampton was, uh, was condemned to death along, along with him, but uh, was not executed. Shakespeare's only known patron. 
Worcester stepped into his shoes, into Essex's shoes as master of the horse, the third or fourth ranking office of the state and became a privy councillor, known by Elizabeth as, in her words, a stiff papist, but a loyal subject. In 1603, he became master of the horse and closest ministerial friend to James too, and a member of the inner circle of the government throughout James's reign into that of Charles I. A man of high culture, William Byrd, the undisputed master musician of the age, dedicated to Worcester important and Catholic works and later died as a tenant in one of his houses, Worcester was a man of decent life at an ever more decadent court, father to many children by his wife, the Countess of Worcester, herself from one of the greatest Protestant families, but now a devout Catholic, a man trusted by all sides, perhaps more than he should have been. For all this time, he employed the remarkable William Sterrell, who did indeed transmit the innermost secrets of the state to English Catholic associates of the Queen's enemies abroad year after year by weekly letters to Antwerp, Brussels and Rome, conveyed secretly out of the country by the Jesuit messenger system organized from hiding places in London by the hidden superior of the Jesuits in England, Father Henry Garnet. Shakespeare came into our picture first as we reflected on these two on those two great weddings that Worcester stage managed in London. First of two daughters of his who were maids of honor in the innermost circle of the old queen, who married young Catholic nobleman at a joint ceremony centering on the Earl of Essex's house in November, 1596. And second, the wedding I've already mentioned too of Worcester's eldest surviving son to a niece of Robert Cecil at ceremonies attended by the Queen in June 1600. On each occasion, there were three days of ceremony and, and entertainment. Throughout the 1580s and 90s, Worcester had a strong company of touring players, which in 1602 would become one of the three recognized playing companies in London. The possibility that Worcester commissioned Shakespeare to write a play for the 1596 wedding a commission overseen surely by William Sterrell, and that if he did, he got a play, Midsummer Night's Dream, good enough to warrant a repeat commission in 1600. That hypothesis becomes a hypothesis overwhelmingly richly verified. Everything fits, nothing is out of place. Shakespeare's relation to Catholicism has not been well understood because people have not understood the circle of Catholics like Worcester or his friend Sir John Peter of Ingatestone, known Catholic and harbourer of priests, but Lord Lieutenant of Essex as deputy to, to William Cecil, Lord Burley, the Queen's Prime Minister from 1558 to his death in 1598. To the 19th and 20th century Catholic historians of the period, people like Worcester appeared to be traitors to the faith, quislings, to be treated with disdain and without curiosity. William Sterrell, his secretary, is a buckle, so to speak, linking the two ends of the Catholic belt. At one end, the recusants, at the other end, the so-called church papists like Worcester and no doubt Sterrell, 
who go to Anglican ceremonies because they can therefore participate in the regime and hope to engineer a Catholic succession at the death of the old queen. And meanwhile, win what little tolerance can artfully be won for the victims of the regime's anti-Catholic policies. Policies designed, as I've said, more or less frankly, to extirpate the religion entirely and finally. Well, in the first of my test lectures, I take you through many of the main elements in the demonstration of the ciphered crypt of meaning under Phoenix and Turtle, and through many of the, a few rather, of the many clues to the underground meaning of the two Somerset wedding plays. Today, I'll say no more than that the surface political meaning of a Midsummer Night's Dream is this, political problems of life-threatening oppression can and should be resolved by the regime's self-reform in a spirit of Erasmian humanism. And that the sur surface political meaning of as you like it is this, a murderous tyranny can aptly be dissolved by the wholly unanticipated conversion of the tyrant to Catholicism and monastic life. These meanings would be quite evident to both parts of the Earl's and his playwright's audience of courtiers and their families. In that first lecture, I also sketched Shakespeare's earlier participation through the play Titus Andronicus in the debate around the so-called Book of Succession, that legally treasonable but beautifully argued work by recusant Catholic exiles about who in principle and in fact should succeed Elizabeth, a work covertly read by everyone who was in any position to affect the succession. Behind its parade of horrors, but not below the surface, Titus Andronicus presented in a broadly, though not quite unqualifiedly favorable light, the vision of restoring good government by foreign armed and foreign manned invasion to install an indigenous patriot. And this is the kind of solution, radically alternative to internal reforms or transformations, that is entertained extensively, though with qualifications, in Richard II, Henry VI, Part I, Richard III, and later in 1606 in Macbeth. In the neighborhood, one could mention Julius Caesar, doubtless from around 1600, which Patrick Martin and I have analyzed in print as conveying that Tyrannicide is a, is a solution that a good man, the hero of the play, will entertain, but not so prematurely and precipitately as Brutus does, who, as if habitually witness his last fatal decision to do battle at Philippi, acts too soon. And then there is Hamlet, doubtless from soon after Essex's revolt of February 1601, a vast rehearsal of psychological and political themes from Essex's career and one that depicts a foreign invasion as a reasonable or inevitable and acceptable solution to the state's misgovernment, even when the foreign army is led this time by a foreigner with historic claims to the hitherto independent realm. Probably the only play between Phoenix and Turtle in mid-1601 and the death of the old queen and peaceful succession of James VI of Scotland as James I of England on the 24th of March, 1603, 
is Troilus and Cressida. It is strongly marked in its treatment of the Greeks by the sense of acute exasperation, if not desperation, among courtly Catholics at the success of Richard Bancroft, Bishop of London, in fomenting public and appallingly bitter dissension and a public war of pamphlets and books between the English Jesuits and many of the other English priests, Catholic priests, a kind of intra-ecclesial civil war that climaxed in 1602. Very soon after the succession of James, indeed in the week in May that James reached London, the week before he gave uh, the warrant to Shakespeare's company and the warrant to Sterile, the bishop wrote a file note congratulating himself. Had he not fomented the dissension within the English Catholic community against the Jesuits, the Infanta, this is Bancroft speaking in his, in his file note, the Infanta of Spain, joint sovereign ruler of Belgium, out of all question would have grown exceeding strong in this realm by the time that Her Majesty died." Unquote. Bancroft's note speaks of the balance of political forces between the Protestants, the Puritans, and the Catholics. That was how everyone at the time saw the religious condition of England. Three religions, as Sir John Harrington, one of the uh, shimmeringly elusive figures, uh, Jacques, uh, of As You Like It, wrote in a marginal note uh, near the very beginning of his 1602 manuscript, tracked on the succession to the crown. He wrote, the great division in England is into papists, Protestants, and Puritans. For to one of these three, all the other sects do in a manner decline and have their dependency. Father Robert Parsons, prefect of the English Jesuits, has a similar marginal note in the Book of Succession that I mentioned in 1595. Three religions in England. The text reads, it is well known that in the realm of England at this day, there are three different and opposite bodies of religion that are of most bulk and that do carry most sway and power, which three bodies are known commonly in England by the names of Protestants, Puritans, and Papists, though the last two do not acknowledge those names. These three bodies then do comprehend in effect all the force of England and do make so general a division and separation throughout the whole land in the hearts and minds of their friends, favorers, and followers. As I have mentioned, although it was the Protestant Robert Cecil who with the acquiescence of the Privy Council stage managed the succession of James on the morning of the old queen's death, 24th of March, 1603, it was by and large Catholics rather than Anglican Protestants and discontentedly Anglican Puritans who welcomed that accession in towns and villages throughout the realm. The latter two religions had something to fear. James, after all, was son of the very Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth and her council had executed to the amazement of all Europe in 1587. And some intimation had certainly reached non-Catholic ears of James's promises to Catholics of toleration and of his tantingly, tantalizingly, uh, tantalizing intimations to them from the Pope down of his possible conversion. 
The letters of William Sterrell, the Earl of Worcester's secretary and double or triple agent, written immediately after the accession, enclosing copies of James's little book, Basilicon, Basilicon Doron, which Robert Parsons took straight to the Pope, who mightily approved of it, give a sense of the delight of the Catholic elite in the succession of James. Within a very few weeks, and long before James reached London in early May, this delight had turned to bitter dismay and apprehension, if not despair. Very, very few historians have recognized this, but the documents in the state papers and the Jesuit archives in London and the Spanish archives at Simanca are quite clear. What James said, especially in his cups at night, feasting among his new courtiers, made it obvious to the Catholic elite that after 45 years of waiting and hoping for better things under a new monarch, things would not be better. They might even turn out to be worse. 45 years of persecution and now nothing in prospect, but more, forever. Toleration, never. The letters to Parsons in Rome suddenly, dramatically change in tone as Parsons tells the Pope when sending him James's pernicious little book on true, that is absolute monarchy. But there is one incident traceable neither in Sterles nor Parsons nor the other or the other surviving English letters, but only in the report to the Dogen Senate by Venice's senior diplomat in England that takes us straight to the threshold and perhaps took Shakespeare straight to the threshold of King Lear. I quote from the, the, the uh, letter of the uh, envoy. The Venetian, the Venetian envoy, when some of the Catholic gentlemen who were with the court withdrew so as to avoid going to church on Easter day, the 24th of April, 1603, in the city of York, as James made his way down from Edinburgh to London, the king said that they should all come to church for who can't pray with me can't love me. So, there is a love test for the new kingdom of Britain as James conceived his realm, England and Scotland united, and it is a religious test. You must pray in and with the king's church, the church of which the king is in fact, as, as well as law, supreme governor. As James was to dramatize in, June, in January 1604, nine months after his arrival in London, by the Hampton Court Conference in which he personally imposed his theological and doctrinal judgments on the Church of England. The idea of a kingly love test preliminary to a division of the kingdom was present in the old chronicles of Britain's legendary early history and alive in contemporary memory by way of poetic and dramatic retellings of the history of Leir, L-E-I-R, King of England and his three daughters, the title of a play entered in the Stationers' Register in 1594, but performed earlier and then published in 1605, supplementing versions of the story, the same story in Hollinshed's Chronicles, extensively used by Shakespeare in his history plays, in Spencer's epic poem of 1590 through 1596, The Fairy Queen, and in other sources known to an educated, especially a courtly public. At some time between mid-1603 and the end of 1606, Shakespeare took up this story of Lear 
and his love test of his three daughters and transformed it into the mighty play King Lear. I should say at once that I have little doubt that this is a play written before the gunpowder plot of October, November, 1605, which deeply altered the texture of relations between Catholics and their fellow citizens in England. Just as it is certain that Macbeth is a, or one might say the post gunpowder plot play. And I think it is clear that what King Lear evokes and reenacts is the mood among the English Catholic elite, like Worcester, in May 1603, the utter dismay and foreboding, if not despair, that I just mentioned. Well, that's one of the things it evokes, one of the religious things it evokes. Because of plague in London, James's coronation, organized and presided over by Worcester as Earl Marshal for the day, took place on the 25th of July, 1603, in much reduced form in Westminster Abbey, away from the city of London. And James did not present himself officially to his people in London or process there until the opening of his first English parliament in March, 1604. There on the 19th of March, he made a great speech immediately published and distributed by the King's printer, announcing the union of England and Scotland as Great Britain, and then addressing the division of England into three religions a division which he conceded even in the act of denying it. He says, at my first coming, although I found but one religion publicly allowed, yet I found another sort of religion besides a private sect, which I call a sect rather than a religion. He addressed the Catholics, the members of the second of those religions last and at much the greatest length. In the course of this address to them, he made clear that they must entertain no hope of any relief from any part of the Elizabethan legislative framework of repression. There would be no reform of any kind except a possible curtailing of erroneous judicial interpretations of the many legislative provisions for punishment and expropriation and for the imposition of religious duties, both positive and negative in direct conflict with the obligations of Catholics under their own ecclesiastical law and church order. Having thus formally and officially and finally repudiated his promises, some of them in writing, reported Sterrell in early 1603, his promises of toleration of Catholicism, James turned to another and more formal articulation of his informal love test at York. Of one thing I would have the papists of this land be admonished. I could not permit the increase and growing of their religion without first betraying of myself and mine own conscience, and therefore would I wish all good subjects that are deceived with that corruption, and that is Catholicism, assuring themselves that as long as they are disconformable in religion from us, me, they cannot be but half my subjects, be able to do but half service, and I to want, black, the best half of them, which is their souls. 
These final words of the king's long admonition of the English Catholics will surely have resonated in the ears not only of the Catholics, but of all present. Catholics will have grimly reflected that the king spoke better than he knew. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Catholics regarded the division of church and state as ineluctable, permanent, a kind of pair of parallel lines that never meet, lines running through the soul of believers and the constitution of civil society. Neither secular in charge of sacred nor ecclesial in charge of secular. Not for Catholics a governing of the state by the congregation of the godly, as the Puritans envisaged, nor a governing of the church by the state, as the Protestants, that is, Anglicans, accepted. So now we can notice the first of the many changes that Shakespeare's play makes to the old and familiar story of Leah and his daughters. He supplies, Shakespeare supplies the youngest daughter for the very first time, I believe, with a reason and an argument for failing to match, let alone trump, her sister's professions of love. Astonishingly, modern critics like my school teachers, though they display much curiosity about Cordelia's motives and psychological condition in failing to compete, display no curiosity about her reasoning and absolutely no awareness that an early Jacobean courtly audience such as assembled at court to see the play on St. Stephen's night, 26th of December, 1606, could not fail to be reminded of James's political love test. For what is Cordelia's reason for not being able to heave her heart into her mouth to match, if not outbid, her sister's show of love for Leah, their father? Here it is in all its lucidity. Good my Lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as are right fit. I obey you, love you, and most honour you. Why have my sister's husbands, if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that Lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Remembering James's resonant half, 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 alert courtiers will have begun to wonder whether, in attending to the division of the kingdom into three just announced by Leah, they are meant by the playwright to think also of the division of the realm of England or of Britain into three, three religions, and to associate the younger daughter with the religion that James accused of sharing beliefs and a condition of the heart and soul, such as Cordelia has just attributed to herself at this, the play's first and originating crisis. By the end of the play, such courtiers and readers will have had their hypothesis sufficiently, yet deniably, confirmed. For what are the further changes that the play makes to the familiar story? besides its brilliant uniting of that story with the Gloucester Edgar Edmund story that Shakespeare found in its main line in Sydney's Arcadia, posthumously published in 1590. To the old Lear story, Shakespeare has done the following. 
First, he has introduced the Duke of Burgundy, called simply Burgundy, just as the King of France is always called just France, and has described Leah's plans of dynastic marriage and division of his kingdom with geopolitical precision. Thereby, Shakespeare subtly places the audience in the geopolitical situation of England and Great Britain, juxtaposed to two great Catholic powers, the France of Henry IV, the convert to Catholicism, and Burgundy, that is the Spanish Netherlands that were united to Spain, when Philip the Fair, Duke of Burgundy, whose ducal court was in Brussels, inherited the Spanish throne in 1500 or 1502. Sadly, many editors of Shakespeare think that Burgundy is the region of southern France where the, where the wines now called Burgundy come from, a region that was a separate and distant part of the possessions of the Dukes of Burgundy. But Shakespeare takes good care to remind us of the relevant geography when Leah, turning to put Cordelia to the love test, speaks of the vines of France and milk of Burgundy. And the French king a little later speaks of waterish Burgundy, the low countries, as we call them, with their dikes and canals and Frisian cows from North Holland, which from the 13th to the 16th century massively dominated the production of milk and cheese in Europe. Secondly, Shakespeare has departed vastly from all previous versions by having the virtuous French invasion led by Cordelia as Queen of France end rapidly in defeat instead of the victory it had in the Chronicles and in Holinshed's and everyone's versions. And so thirdly, Cordelia, instead of ascending the throne or thrones vacated by the defeated husbands of her sisters as 11th monarch of Britain in the line from Brutus, is hoisted Hagamaga onto the gallows of the English state and there perishes by reason of the Machiavellian ingenuity and ruthlessness too late repented of in the jaws of death, of the arch-rationalist, skeptic, seducer, and political manipulator, Edmund. And fourthly, this fate of Cordelia is an as unlooked for and as harrowing for audiences then as it is today. Or even more so then, because this playwright has taken such care not too likely to be replicated by modern directors or noticed by secular readers, to present Cordelia in the image of sanctity. This process begins inconspicuously when France declares to Lear that he can scarcely believe her, Cordelia, guilty of anything that might warrant Lear's rejection of her. Sure, he says, her offense, note the word, must be of such unnatural degree that monsters it makes it monstrous which to believe of her must be a faith that reason without miracle could never plant in me. Which injects into the play for the first of many times, Christian concepts, indeed concepts contested between Catholics and the Protestants who believed that with the New Testament, the age of miracles ended in effect forever. With the audience thus alerted to Christian concepts and echoes, France then courts Cordelia, who for the first time has become available to him through Burgundy's refusal to marry her without a dowry and her dignified refusal of a duke who thus has respects of fortune as his love. France addresses her in language that 
as modern critics willingly, if incuriously, concede, echoes the New Testament, partly in vocabulary, more completely in rhythm and in spirit and meaning. Fairest Cordelia, that art most rich being poor, most choice forsaken, and most loved despised. And what is being echoed? Well, it's 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 to 4, 9 to 11, in the, Gene in the Geneva Bible of 1560 that Shakespeare usually quotes or echoes, where it reads thus, we give no occasion or offense, note the word, in anything, but in all things we approve ourselves as the ministers of God, as unknown and yet known, as sorrowing and yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet make many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The marginal note to these verses in the Catholic translation of 1581, the Dowie Reims New Testament says, the epistle for the feast days of many martyrs. Leah himself, of course, greets France's beautiful words of self-dedication to Cordelia with, thou hast her, France, let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. Therefore be gone without our grace, our love, our benison. Come, noble Burgundy. As we know, Leah does see that face of hers again when they meet shortly before the disastrous battle between France, French and Britain, Edmund's and Albany's British forces. Leah has just awakened from the sleep which ends his madness. She kneels and asks his benison, using the word benediction instead. He kneels to her, but still he scarcely recognizes her and scarcely knows where he is. By the time we next see them, they are prisoners of Edmund after the battle and are being led away to prison where, as Edmund soon makes clear to the audience, but not to them, they will be murdered on his orders. It is soon clear that by now Leah has attained to perfect lucidity about everything, a lucidity comprehending but far surpassing the wisdom of the world. Cordelia says to her father, we are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, am I cast down. Myself could else outfrown false fortune's frozen frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? Leah, no, 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 come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales, and laugh at gilded butterflies, and hear poor rogues talk of court news, and we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things, as if we were God's spies, and we'll wear out in a walled prison pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Take them away, says Edmund. Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, says Leah, the gods themselves throw incense. 
these are the last moments of communication in this world between the oppressed king and his one true daughter. The mysterious gentleman in Act 4, Scene 3, had described shaking the holy water for her, described her shaking the holy water from her heavenly eyes. And the same gentleman had in Act 4, Scene 6, said to Leah himself, thou hast one daughter who redeems nature from the general curse which twain have brought her to. A most audaciously direct equating of Mary of Cordelia to Mary, the new Eve, who by her consent to the incarnation redeemed nature from the curse of universal original sin that the twain, Adam and Eve, had brought her to, brought it nature to. As Cordelia herself in Act 14 4 had applied to herself the words of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, by saying, O dear Father, it is thy business that I go about. And who at every point re echoes her first line in the play love and be silent. By emphasizing that what she is doing in returning to Britain is simply for love, dear love, and our aged father's right. Thus, the final, final presentation of Leah and Cordelia is as, or as if, in prison. God spies. Transcending by their mutual love and her forgiveness of him, all the worldly courtly affairs on which Leah and the courtiers watching the play at Christmas 1606 have always been absorbed. And as by their living and praying and singing, making themselves or ratifying themselves, or at least her deeds of generosity, as sacrifices, popish word, on which the gods themselves throw incense, popish practice. This presentation, I would say, not only is one of the highest things in Shakespeare, but magisterially pulls together the piece by piece confirmation of the hypothesis that Cordelia can be seen as Catholicism itself, its faith and its ecclesial community here in England, or perhaps uh, I should say tonight, Britain. Thank you.